0: Welcome back to another episode of Soundlore, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we sound off about recent scholarship, ideas, and current happenings from the fine folks who have crossed paths with our department. My name is Jeremy Reed. Of course, moderating is the inimitable David McDonald. The purpose of this podcast, broadly speaking, is to document snapshots, snap sounds, of our department, whether it's highlighting students and faculty, celebrating books and careers or capturing presentations and lectures. As an archive of our shared and individual experiences, being able to record roundtables such as the one you're about to hear is vital to working towards our way forward through and beyond the pandemic. This episode is meant to be a document of experiences, but it's not the end of the story. If you have experiences you want to share or feedback for us, please reach out. Enjoy the conversation.
1: Welcome to Soundlore. Lore. On this week's episode, we will be discussing The Effect of COVID, Pandemic and Larger Health Issues on Fieldwork Practices in Folklore and Ethnomusicology. Joining me this week are three stellar PhD candidates from the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. And we will be hopefully discussing their experiences in commencing fieldwork practices in the age of COVID. If I might ask each of you to introduce yourselves, that would be great. All right,
2: hi, I'm Caroline Miller. I'm a PhD candidate in folklore um, and I'm currently working on my dissertation um, in which I'm trying to highlight the diversity that exists within the Irish traveler community um, by looking at the different ways that Irish traveler women engage
3: with their community's traditions. I'm Mickey Jo Myers. I'm also a PhD candidate in folklore and my research focuses on makers and identities in the Midwest.
4: Hello, I'm Ross Brillhart, PhD candidate in ethnomusicology. Um, I'm passionate about ethnomusicology and health. My dissertation is on music, sound, and addiction.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for being here this week. The reason why I specifically invited you to participate in this conversation is because not only are you some of our best graduate students, but you were moving into the fieldwork stage of your dissertations, right as the pandemic hit. And that put you on in a very difficult position. Graduate students are often on a really limited timeline for when and how they can get their research done, whether that's based on departments and their calendars or just funding agencies. And that puts you in a very difficult position. And I'm curious if perhaps, Mickey Joe, you might start us off by talking about how you kind of had to respond to the pandemic when it came to getting your dissertation research going.
3: Sure. So I started, I took my qualifying exams in December, in November of 2019, passed in December of 2019, started field work uh, January 2020, and then abruptly stopped. I had to adjust, I was doing research with veterans in the Midwest, specifically um, veteran groups. Uh, And when we went into lockdown, I couldn't go to any of the gallery openings or any of the group workshops that I was attending. Um, And so I had to shift gears and try to immediately go to Zoom interviews uh, that didn't really work with the community I was working with, and ended up having to do more intense reevaluation of how the pandemic was affecting the communities and the complications with doing ethnographic work in them at that time. Um, so it was a huge pivot, and it definitely felt like I had been running full speed throughout the entire academic process. And then when the pandemic hit, It's kind of like running into a brick wall, but I have pivoted and adjusted since. Can
1: you give us a sense
3: of how you had to pivot? So I have decided to change my dissertation topic because I think that the community I was working with um, needs more time than you can uh, reasonably ask for on a dissertation timeline. I think that... uh, I need to put more, I think we all need to, but I think I need to put more effort into um, understanding trauma-informed ethnography. Uh, So that doesn't fit in with like a dissertation timeline at this stage where I'm at. Um, So now I am focusing more on uh, people in the Midwest who make art uh, and set up outside their homes and kind of looking at it from, an absurdism lens and and the response to like late stage capitalism. And the veteran work I was doing is gonna have to wait until I can have more time to apply it and treat it with the seriousness that it needs.
1: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, Ross, you were kind of right at the same phase as Mickey Joe when the pandemic hit. Could you talk us through how it affected your research plans?
4: Sure, yeah. I'd- was a little lucky in the sense that I had been working on my project for about five years before COVID started. But I was at that quintessential moment where the year-long in-depth field work would begin, um, where I could put a little extra time without coursework in the back of my mind directly into this project. Um, so I finished my quals, right as lockdown began at Indiana University, did all my stuff on Zoom, um, and had to pivot from this really embodied research of participating in recovery meetings at concerts to taking a lot of stock of what I had thus far, who I had talked to, and pretty much turn everything into long phone conversations, zoom interviews, and to a certain extent, online research um, to fill out the the embodied knowledge I had already gained by by participating in these groups thus far. Um, So I, I, I wasn't compelled to change my dissertation research, everything was able to kind of go on, mostly as planned, but I just had to maybe some of the foci ended up changing based on what I had and what I was able to gain from just in-depth interviews, just talking to people rather than um, being with them in person and doing the things myself.
1: Did you find that Zoom was an adequate uh, platform for pivoting your research? Uh, Mickey Joe just mentioned that Zoom wasn't really viable for the project that she wanted to do. Did you find that Zoom was, was uh, enough uh, to continue your research?
4: Honestly, yeah. Yes. For, for my group, it worked out pretty well. Um, Music scene that I'm working with has a really long history of internet use and internet community. They often cite themselves as one of the first music scenes to utilize the internet back in the AOL days. Um, So, so there's a lineage there. There's, there's a history to this type of community, this type of communicating, Um, and yeah, zoom for what I needed to do, uh, which is just talk to people, get, get their take on what was happening, especially pre-COVID, uh, ended up being pretty fruitful, uh, even more so because as you can imagine doing any sort of interview in a concert setting, especially one where there's 20,000 people and quite a bit going on is, uh, its own has its own challenges (laughs) so setting aside the the time to do that on zoom um it's it's ideal or it can be ideal when when the latter isn't an option or the former isn't an option
1: yeah i mean this brings up a lot of questions about access and privilege in terms of technology um digital literacy and other kind of entry points into ethnographic research that may or may not be present Caroline you did some you were in Ireland doing a lot of your field work and so your pandemic experiences is informed with an entirely different cultural and national response to the pandemic I wonder if you could talk us through what your experience was like.
2: Yeah, um, so I was actually in, living in Dublin Ireland, um, when Ireland shut down and like, when it shut down it stayed shut down. Um, so. My, um, my first kind of research for this project um, was in spring of 2018 I went over for a previous field work just to kind of figure out what my main questions were going to be made some contacts there but hadn't you know really, um, I really wanted to wait to start interviews until I had a really solid understanding of the community and um, had really built some good relationships and trust up. Um, And that was a huge part of my methodology and had been since I even started thinking about this project, which would have been great, except about the time that I had felt really solid with these relationships was about the time COVID hit. So I went back over to Ireland um, in the summer of 2019 and had just started interviews in January, um, but had only done interviews with a few people that I had become especially close with. And in March, March 12th is when Ireland shut down. Um, and that was actually that day I got interviews to, or, um, invitations to go out to different halting sites, which is basically, uh, places where travelers, live um and got invited to go out to the sites and meet people and it would have been this amazing opportunity um and then literally that night everything shut down um because in Ireland it uh everything shut down to the point where you couldn't go more than two and a half kilometers from your home um and you were only supposed to leave to go to the grocery store to walk pets or to go get medical help. And that was otherwise you're supposed to stay inside. Uh, we like had most of the time our groceries delivered and all that. Um, so, yeah, it was, I had to completely change my strategy. I ended up doing a lot of interviews over the phone, um, which was not ideal um, for sound quality issues and just. For having that personal connection um the it also the kind of snowball um sampling this like idea of i meet one person interview them they have a good experience and then they direct me to other people was seriously hindered because those people couldn't meet me face to face and this is not a community um that is necessarily like not everyone has access to internet. If they do, it might not be the kind of internet quality that you would need to do an, uh, like a zoom interview. Um, so yeah, I, uh, that was intense and, um, had to change a lot of my plans in terms of going out to sites and, and getting a better feel. I originally thought I was going to focus on, um, issues of, or narratives that people tell about eviction um, and not being able to get out to the sites was kind of, you know, put put that on the back burner for sure. Um, I went back this past summer and um, was able to meet with contacts that I had made before and meet a few extra people, but it was really limited um, because Ireland was still very shut down. Um, you know, a few more things were open, pubs were open outside, um, but it was still, everyone was still very much uh, worried about transmission and the rates of transmission for the traveler community, like a lot of marginalized groups, because they had a lot more severe effects, it was spreading a lot more, so going out to halting sites, I did get to go out to a couple, but it was pretty rare because um, the rate, the COVID rates on those sites were just too high. So yeah, so I ended up switching uh, to focus more on how women engage with their tradition, um, something that's not so focused on housing and narratives about housing. Um, yeah, it was wild. I, it also meant that I had like a year in between my year long field work. Um, And when I went back into the field this summer to try to make up for some of that lost time where I was pretty much just spinning my wheels, which was really difficult academically and like for mental health reasons, because I had this really uh, planned out narrative about how everything was gonna go um, and then it didn't. Yeah, so that was difficult. And also just, you, you can't get done in two months, of when you've come back um, of what I was on the trajectory to have gotten done in that four months when I kind of had the momentum going. So, um, but on the upside, I had some really great, um, like it It definitely, because I had to come back that next summer, I think it um, made some of the people I was working with realize that I'm really serious about this community and I'm not just going to go and disappear. Um, so that was helpful in terms of being able to communicate that I was invested in the community.
1: You know, Caroline, you bring up a really interesting point there. Um, graduate studies alone are stressful. Doing fieldwork for a dissertation is incredibly stressful in and of itself under the best of conditions. And all three of you have described instances where the pandemic threw such a, a wrench into your plans, plans that you had been planning for years prior. I can only imagine that it put an incredible amount of mental health stress on each of you in the field. I'm wondering if you might be interested or willing to kind of share what the effect of the pandemic was on you personally while you were trying to finish your fieldwork with all of these years of pre- uh, preparation and training. And then here was your great moment for you to go out and collect your data to write that amazing dissertation. And now all of a sudden this happens. Um, I can only imagine that it was an incredibly stressful time uh, to be to be attempting to do this work.
2: I can speak a little bit. Um, I think at least like while I was in lockdown in Ireland, I just stayed in a really solid denial state. I was just like, this is going to be fine. This is bad, but it's going to be fine. It's going to get better. And like, I'll be able to come back next year and do exactly everything I need to do. And like, I'll figure out the financial side of it, which is a whole other um, thing to be able to come back when, you know, I hadn't budgeted for that and didn't have the grants for that. Um But I, yeah, I just lived in a solid, like everything's on fire and this is going to be fine, which is not healthy at all, but that's just where I was. And, and since I was so in it, that was kind of the only thing I could do.
1: Yeah, that makes perfect sense.
3: I had two big realizations at the start of the pandemic kind of simultaneously a few months in. Um, My first reaction was to work super hard. Uh, I think some of that came from being a first gen student and kind of doing the whole PhD thing. with the understanding that I probably was never going to finish, but doing it anyway, like that kind of uh, a self-doubt. So when the pandemic hit, right as I'm starting field work, there was a part of my brain that was like, ah, indeed, like just not, you know, kind of a selfish response, but I was kind of just like, of course. And my reaction to that was to triple down on what I was doing work-wise and to go as hard as I could. And for the first like two months or so of the pandemic, I was in, in my home by myself, didn't see anyone for two months, and I applied to I don't know how many things, and I wrote a bunch of grant applications and wrote a bunch of, like, proposals for stuff, and just, I worked 12 hours a day just typing, and then I was trying to do these Zoom interviews, and when I would Zoom with people that I met, um, they would talk to I would ask them how they were doing and I had relationships with people so I would be like you know how are your kids and they would give me a list of what they had done that day um just like what they were doing to stay busy and I recognized in them that it had been sort of a trauma response to being in upheaval and so that they were responding by working really hard and then I realized that that's what I was doing um and the the long-term complications are that is once I realized that that was my coping mechanism, the coping mechanism ceased to function. Um, And that was part of the reason why I couldn't continue interviewing my informants that way because I have all these resources, I have health insurance, I have this great community around me now, I can deal with developing new coping mechanisms, but I can't ask that of my informants. so that, that was definitely the initial response of like, well, I will just work without interruption and that is how I will respond to this. And I think honestly, if I had been at the writing stage of my dissertation, it probably would have gotten done. Like that's how hard I was going. But since I was at the like reflexive and talk to more people and you know process things, it just, I had the hardest time thinking about like what was happening with my interviews because it was so uh, situated in me also not being able to be self, self-reflective. And then I got there when I couldn't ask it of other people.
1: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Ross, did you want to share anything?
4: Yeah, I understand both of those experiences so well. I feel like I began initially by grieving, this this moment this lost moment this big at least a year in the field you get to actually be an ethnomusicologist it's the the shining moment we're all told that we get in grad school Um, but i I had such a similar response with i just worked i went straight to i think most ethnomusicologists were so compelled by the the balcony musicians and all of these uses of sound and protest and community so I, i started writing How can this apply to my community? Uh, I'm an ethnomusicologist that's really interested in health and all of a sudden the entire world was consumed by an issue of health. So there there was a lot that I really wanted to unpack and continue to want to unpack. Not all of which was relevant to my dissertation, but it was something to do in the moment. Um, But yeah, somewhere between grief and work That first uh, nine months existed uh, before, as I continued to reel it in and do interviews with people and get back to (laughs) get back to the task at hand, which was figuring out this dissertation.
1: Right. You know, every methodology class I've ever taught, you, you, you teach as much as you can. But you, you warn the students that the moment they get into the field, they'll most likely have to abandon everything they've been taught in fieldwork, and develop their own methods, um, which align with the contexts of their research and the needs of their communities that they're working with. Uh, I don't think it ever happened to the extent that it did under COVID with the pandemic, where you really threw everything out the window. Um, And keep in mind that Zoom technology was still not really useful in an ethnographic context. Maybe it still isn't, but you've each expressed experiences where you had to in the field, not only just improvise your methods, but do so in a way that attempted not to cause harm with the communities that you were working with. Um, Imagine you're teaching a fieldwork class what are you going to say to your students, Caroline? What do you think?
2: Ooh, um, what, what
3: am I going to... a minute. Yeah, let's 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 make let's let Mickey go first. Okay, Mickey Joe. So I think one of the things that we need to collectively, as a discipline, uh, work on is having rigorous standards for trauma informed ethnography and not so much our um, idea of what that might be, because a lot of times, especially with trauma-informed care, your instincts of how to respond to people are incorrect. Uh, so I think that we need to consciously be up on the latest uh, best practices, according to psychologists, um, because with the pandemic and global upheaval, um You can't assume that anyone you're interviewing in any community hasn't endured some form of trauma. We've all suffered trauma, I think. Um, And I don't know that we have best practices in place right now. I think a lot of times, because uh, the ethnography that we do as a discipline is so broad and so far reaching, that it's hard to have um, recommendations of this is how you do this. Like you said, you get in the field and you have to improvise, but there are best care things that we could learn and teach and be aware of. Um, and I think that would be a huge part of teaching fieldwork now.
1: You've mentioned um, the incorporation of trauma-informed ethnographic methods as being an important place of um, a place of improvement or development in, in folklore and ethnomusicology. What, can you give me an example of what you mean by that?
3: So we have a lot of really good information that exists now on uh, documenting trauma narratives. Mm -hmm. That is different, uh, I think, than trauma-informed ethnography. So knowing how to physically appropriately respond to someone having a PTSD flashback, Um, being aware that, different people are going to have different triggers and completely innocuous conversations can trigger people's PTSD. Um, Also uh, making sure that when you are interviewing people that you provide them with clear, clearly defined and explained out agency um, for them to dictate where the conversation goes, Um, especially, now, post-COVID, um, a lot of things that seem like benign domestic topics are going to be triggers for people. So those are just uh, a few off the top of my head. But um, I have I realized that there is a lot of uh, better psychological practices that I don't think we're all necessarily aware of, myself included. That's part of what I need to research.
1: Those are all excellent points. I think in, in folklore and anthropomusicology, there is this kind of romanticization of violence and trauma inflicted upon or experienced by the communities we study. And so we often try to explore and understand the, those traumas And in the, and in the act of our collecting data can do harm, can do great harm. And we often talk about reciprocity and rapport and these other methodology concepts, I don't think we talk much about trauma, or at least minimizing the harm we cause and then uh, accepting the responsibilities and obligations that ethnographic research puts upon us as scholars. Um, I think that's an excellent takeaway from from this conversation is is now perhaps more than ever, we can use this moment to rethink fieldwork from a more informed perspective in terms of the traumas that our interlocutors have experienced. I'm curious, Caroline or Ross, do either of you have kind of maybe takeaways that you might think would be an important addition to a standard fieldwork discussion or methodology?
2: Yes, absolutely. I cannot echo what Mickey was saying enough that the trauma informed um, work is so important. Um, Also, I think, I don't know if this would necessarily be like in a field work class. Um, I think this kind of the expectations that we set for our students and um, like this kind of formulaic understanding of like what ethnography is and more or less what, what it's gonna look like how long, you know, that you're going to go for like X amount of time, and then you're going to come back, and you're going to write, and that's kind of it. Um, I think that does a lot of harm, because it, in one way, it's really specific, um, and in another way, it's super vague, and so that leaves I think especially young ethnographers, like beginning career ethnographers in a really weird space, especially when that doesn't work. Kind of like what Ross was saying about like, we all had, were told, we were promised that if we worked hard and, and did really well in our coursework and applied for lots of grants, we would get a year-long fieldwork experience where we got to like be in the field, doing what we love and focusing only on that and trying to do some kind of good in the world. Um, And like, that's definitely not why I'm getting a PhD now, but that's why I like, that's why I applied to PhD programs. Like I wanted, I, I wanted to do this year long research since I was a freshman in college in 2009. So like, having that like like again echoing what Ross was saying that grieving period of being like this isn't actually going to work out and COVID was a huge reason that lots of people had to deal with that but there's a million other reasons why people experience that so I think maybe focusing a little bit more on adaptability in um methodology courses would be helpful we mentioned like it's like you were saying every course you always say you know you're going to get there and everything's going to change um and i don't know what that would look like but really there's one thing there's a difference between hearing something and understanding it and i think if there was a way to maybe put a little bit more focus on okay how do you change a field work plan um you know, how do you how do you take care of yourself when you're going through a kind of grief for best laid plans, um, so both on a practical level, adaptability, but also on like a mental health, emotional level?
1: You know, that's an excellent point. There's so much literature on how to do interviews, how to take notes, how to collect data. There is so little literature for how to just think about self-care in the field, um, or how to improvise and be flexible, how to re- rethink the project as you're trying to create the project. Um, we spend so little time talking about mental health and self-care of, of the scholar, of the researcher. Um, and then as Mickey Joe pointed out, we talk even less about trying to understand the traumatic impact our research might have for those we're, we are studying and working with. Um, those are excellent points. Um, Ross, do you have anything you might want to add to that?
4: I can only try. I I mean, I definitely echo what both have said already and expectations definitely paved the road to hell, which I think we all found ourselves in for at least a moment there. Um, I guess in terms of a, an ethnographic research course, putting at least my prerogative would be to put a little less, um, a little less focus on what ethnography could be or was in the past or should have been in the past and put a little more focus towards definitely what ethnography should be no matter how it's formulated. Um, Ethnography is always emergent. Uh, Ethnography is, is jamming. We're out there improvising with people as these ideas, these conceptions and our methodologies emerge in that moment. To best serve our our aims, um, ethnography is empathy. I mean, at the very core of everything, ethno- ethnography is us practicing some sort of radical empathy, which I might have stole from you, Dave. It's hard. It's hard for me to remember. Um, and along with the empathy, I mean, ethnographies should illustrate some sort of nuance, which I think is becoming even more important in this covid moment for (laughs) for a thousand different reasons but in terms of a course i feel like putting a little more focus on what all at least in my opinion what all good ethnography can be in terms of ethics in terms of actual practice rather than some idealized set of or rubric of um methodological practice needs to be the first step even down to the way that we expect students to plan an ethnography with these types of proposals that we ask for in which every professor is like well we know that it's emergent and it's going to change but you have to write the paragraphs for us in the particular order because that's what we do that's how we plan ethnographies but right I think there there can be a little more nuance to illustrate the nuance that we're expected in the field.
1: I couldn't agree more. We spend so much time training our students on what the ideal scenario is, what a dissertation proposal looks like. What a grant proposal looks like the year that you spend in the field as if that one year is a magical amount of time that will produce the kind of data necessary to write a dissertation and to come back and then to have all this amazing data collected that you then can sort through and code and analyze and then transcribe and then immediately here comes a dissertation and I'm, I'm beginning to think that the model we use to teach fieldwork and ethnography actually causes more harm then it solves because we are putting in the minds our students an ideal which we know for a fact from the get-go will never actually occur, and so what we are really doing is setting up our students to fail, or at least to feel as if they have failed when their project does not go the way that we have told them projects go. Even though mine didn't go that way either, so I, I, I completely agree with your your ideas here, and I think it this. I'm hoping that this is a moment where we can all just take uh, some time to rethink the way that we talk about our work. And instead of focusing on the ideal, um, focus on the failure, right? Uh, Just recently, we had an amazing talk here on campus by Dr. Todd Lawrence, who was talking about folklore as failure. Um, And I'm really taken with this idea and that what if we taught, from that perspective of failure, improvisation, flexibility, accommodation, instead of teaching from a place of fixity, of assuredness, of certainty, of all of these other things. Because in many ways, we're just setting up our students to feel as if they have failed when their project doesn't go as planned. When in fact, there is not a project that goes as planned. Caroline? Yeah. So,
2: um, I just wanted to shout out. So I did my master's at Carolina at UNC Chapel Hill and took an ethnography course there with, uh, Dr. Glenn Henson. And that course was incredible because it, it brought in all these very different kind of possibilities for modes of how to do ethnography and how to transcribe and, um, there there was a lot of talk about like um, thinking of this kind of idea of like that you're, it's always going to be a little bit of a failure. You're never actually, the goal is to understand another human being, which is not actually possible to fully understand someone else's experience accepting that from a really early stage. um, I think was really helpful in like negotiating, um, the, you know, such a drastic change, like right in the middle of my field work. Um, And also kind of this, like, I think doing collaborative ethnography where you're having to constantly check in with your interlocutors um, is really helpful for maybe highlighting some failures that are real easy to ignore if you're not doing that. And granted, that said, that's not gonna work with every community. Um, You know, I I think there's lots of people that I work with that have absolutely zero interest in hearing anything I'm gonna write um, about the community. And some people do, but um, so that of course has its own challenges, but that loads of people have written about. Uh, But I think starting students with an introduction, to ethnography that's highlighting um, collaborative ethnography and different modes of presenting an ethnography, like looking at finished products that look really different from each other uh, is super helpful. And um, yeah, we'll always love and appreciate Glenn Henson for that class because it made a huge difference.
1: Oh, that's excellent. You were very fortunate then. Well, I'm curious as like a, a final question to you all, you've, you've not yet finished the process, you're still very much in it. Um, and, and we are still grappling with the kind of long-term future of ethnographic research is as a result of the pandemic. So tell me, is ethnography lost? Is fieldwork a fool's errand? Is the pandemic, Has the pandemic shown us perhaps the limitations of the work to the point where perhaps it's not really the right thing for us to be doing? What's the future of ethnographic research in this pandemic era? Ross is smiling at me, so I'm thinking he might have something to say.
4: Why Why would ethnography be lost? I guess I just actually I just have a question.
1: Well, I mean, if anything, this is a moment where we're rethinking every aspect of the work that we do, specifically in terms of decentering, decolonizing, um, working towards more ec- equitable and inclusive strategies of representation, obligations of response, applied and public work, and then we compound that with a pandemic, which turns up the volume on all of the various aspects of privilege and and healthcare care and um, wellness that might make ethnographic research too difficult to accomplish and perhaps harmful for the people we are trying very much to to engage with and with all of those things kind of coming together in this particular moment i'm i'm just curious what your thoughts are on the future of ethnographic research in general
2: i don't i don't think that there's i don't think that ethnography is a a fool's errand. I don't think it's it's worthless. I think we need to be, we really need to rethink how we approach our our interactions with people writ large and then more, you know, double that if we're working with vulnerable populations, which most of us are. And at this point, as Mickey was saying, you know, everyone's kind of experienced trauma. So I think we need to be really mindful of that And really thoughtful about our own positionalities and the positionalities of the people we're working with, and um, be reflexive, you know, and and just very conscious of that when we're in the field, when we're writing, when we're, um, you know, doing lit reviews, everything. But I think to say that the endeavor to bear witness to something human and to try to understand other people. And understand the human condition a little bit better. How could that ever be not worth doing? It's never going to be perfect, and it can be harmful. And I think the best thing you can do is to try to make it to to try to make it as do as little harm as possible. Hopefully, you know, not do harm. But um, you know, we do harm to people when we have friendships. Inviting someone into your life is inviting them to potentially do you harm, but it also is inviting a potential to help you grow as a person and help them grow as a person. So it, it doesn't make any sense to me to say that attempting to better understand the human condition and the people that we share the planet with is a futile endeavor.
1: That was well said. Thank you
4: i think that essentially eloquently uh, explained my smile <laughs> that i had that, that was spot on yeah i mean i yeah i think it's the opposite for me too i think if if anything it's time to double down on ethnography um, what the ethnography is that might that might be the, the point of contention is it the and we already discussed this is it this ethnography that focuses on potential failure emergence improvisation that's really just trying to better understand people, their experiences, their practices, and what shaped those, um, that'd be good. Um, If it's an ethnography that, even if it's not intentional, ends up objectifying people, turning them into subjects. um, I mean, I would argue that maybe that was a tiny bit of a failed ethnography that didn't reach its full ethnographic humanist potential Um, but a good, well thought out ethical type of ethnography. Yeah. I think it's time to double down on that. Lord knows we all need a little more nuance right now.
3: Uh, I would say that, uh, obviously I agree with you both And this, at this moment, I can't think of a time when ethnography has been more important. I think the distinction that we need to be aware, uh, in our discipline though, is, the parameters of doing a dissertation versus doing a, a situated career research, and mm-hmm. the expectations of doing thoughtful and careful ethnography within the timeline that is required to be a, to finish a dissertation is not necessarily um, factored into how we're thought of ethnography because it kind of only works if we hold on to that idealized fantasy of a year in the field and a year back writing. Um, And I don't think that that necessarily can go forward. Uh, I think that we need to allow more time and space there, or we need to change our expectations of the kind of ethnography you do for dissertation work.
0: SoundLore is an official production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University, produced by David McDonald and Jeremy Reed. Music provided by Pagliotti and some other clowns. Engineered by Amanda Luke. Questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Leave us a message at 812-855-0396. If you haven't already, please subscribe to SoundLore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Thank you for listening.